2: Alright then. Hey you guys, welcome to another episode of the podcast that doesn't get easier, it just gets faster. If you guy pause, because if you get that if you get that quote, you get a shiny nickel. Even though I can't afford it. I'm Pat Bolger. Welcome to the Pack for the Podcast. Hey you guys. I know. Pat, you're turning them around. What's going on? Why the episode coming so quickly? It's not like a month and a half in between shows. Well, this, this is not an easy task, but sometimes the interviews just fall into place and we can be able to get them to you. Oh, you guys, before I even get to anything, I do have to mention, I do got to mention some great people and organizations who are helping this podcast along the way. First and foremost, I think if you heard the last episode with Amanda Batty, you heard the news. Yes, big thanks to Giant Bicycles, one of our title sponsors. It's true that Giant is the world's largest producer of high-quality bikes, but they never forget where they came from. They started small, were founded on the idea that the best way to inspire passion for cycling is to create the best products and make them accessible to all riders. That's what they did back then, and that's what they do today. Big thanks to Giant for being a part of this podcast. Going to be a lot of fun stuff talking about with them coming up in the near future Also, I do want to thank some of our other friends who've been supportive along the show throughout time here. First and foremost, Jake over at Fit for Hope. Check out Fit for Hope. See what's going on over there. We're going to have him on here pretty soon so we can find out a little bit more ins and outs of motivating yourself to actually get off your duff and do something productive this year. Big thanks to the Bike Hub here in Spokane. Local, bicycle, shop. If you don't understand LBS, You're not doing it right. Support local bikes, shops, support places like the Bike Hub Spokane. The crew over there took very good care of me the other day. News to come on that one. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Also want to continue to thank Honey Stinger and Noon. Honeystinger.com, NoonLife.com. You guys know what they do. Keep you hydrated and keep you full of great stuff. There we go. Podcast sponsors happily tucked in. You guys, it's uh, it's kind of tough to open a show this way, and um, I usually try not to be down or depressing or anything like that. But um, if if you know what's going on today is, is um, it's a sad day. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. Today, I'm I'm is Monday, December third, and if you were paying attention, um, we lost a good man yesterday. Paul Sherwin was an artist. He could take an endless endless stage it's one of those transition stages and make it exciting. He taught the world about the sport I love and he helped friends and family members of mine understand why I sit in front of the TV for lengths of period, periods of time and watch bike racing. He fought to bring cycling to everyone, not just the elite. Um, His voice was the narration of my childhood rides Imagining myself in the race, Paul Sherwin's voice took me through those long miles where I imagined I was a rider of great talent and great abilities in the peloton. I know that sounds cheesy, but Paul will be missed. He was funny, caring, passionate, and kind. My thoughts go out to all of his colleagues, friends, and family. We lost him way too soon. And please, please forgive me if it sounds cheesy, but if I'm going to give a little quick moment of silence to one of my heroes in the broadcasting world, thank you very much, and um, Godspeed, Paul tailwinds wherever you may go. How do I transition from that? (laughs) I'll just jump into it, right? Bobby Julik. He gets it. He claims that he came across early in his career, or other people might have seen him early in his career as cocky or arrogant. He says some of that stuff in the interview you're about to hear. But I didn't see that, nor did I experience that in the great talk we had recently. In fact, we actually bs after I shut off the recorder for quite some time after the interview, and this was just the kind of guy that I was like, wow. And in fact, we talk about it at length in the show, and I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but he just seems like one of those guys that when you're, you know, when you're on those incredibly long rides, the conversation just keeps going, and it's, and it's give and take, and it's even leveled. And uh, that was the kind of chat we had today. He was a prominent player in USA Cycling's uh, what I call second wave experiencing incredible ups and downs along the way i'm glad i got the chance to talk with him and after we first uh, crossed paths as juniors yes i i once sat in the same room as bobby in a dorm room at the olympic training center way back in the 80s bobby doesn't remember it and i don't blame him for not remembering it because i was exiting as he was entering as that second wave came to prominence um God, my, my I got trampled by that. <laughs> and justifiably so, those guys were fast. Um, so no, you, know, no grief on Bobby for anything there. But ladies and gentlemen, it was a great chat that I was able to have with Bobby, so let's hear Bobby Doolick on the pack filler. All right, you guys, today's guest has had multiple victories to brag about, and I guess that would be an understatement to say that. He's second American to podium in the Tour de France, third place in 1988. He was the winner of Perry Nice in 2005, the Criterium International in 98 and 2005, as well as silver medal in the 2004 Olympic Time Trial, just to name a few of his incredible victories. Let's welcome to the show American cycling great Bobby Julich. How are you, sir?
1: Doing very well, but uh, I was third in 1998. You said 88, so it makes me Did I say, sound a little bit I, a little bit <laughs> a little bit older than I am.
2: So right out of the gate, I screwed up. I said 88. Okay, that that makes me date myself because I remember I was kind of fast in 88, but I was nothing like you're fast. But anyway, so there we go. And I don't edit my own stuff because if I screw up, my listeners get a chance to make fun of me. So so there we go. I got I got to just live with it, I guess. <laughs> but, hey, so whenever I, whenever I get cyclists on the line, I always like to get kind of a, a perspective piece, I guess. I like to get a picture of how they came into the sport. Some have found it by accident, some by friends, mentors. Some have done other sports that had to kind of make cycling an off-season sport or even luck. Um, so let's, let's ask, Bobby, let's ask you where your path that brought you to cycling was.
1: Yeah, it was actually through ski racing. Uh, I grew up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Um, I was on the ski team, you know, buddy Warner, and then into oh. the, uh, the J O program and, um, one, one off season or after a season, I think I asked my dad for a new pair of skis. I had a pair of slalom skis, but I wanted a pair of GS skis. And he was a UPS driver up in Aspen and he delivered to all the bike shops and ski shops, you know, Alexi Greywald's dad had a place up there, oh, yeah. hub of Aspen. And, um, when I asked him for a pair of skis, he said, great. Yeah. You know, I wish you did a different sport because <laughs> you have a very anaerobic, an aerobic body and you're doing a very anaerobic sport. And like, at that time it was like 1985 when he said that to me or 1984. Um, and I was just like, what does that mean? I had no idea. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, he, he said, okay, um, all the guys up in Aspen say that if you want to be a good ski racer that you need to do some, you know, cross training, which again, 1984, 1985, I don't even know if that, <laughs> that term existed back then. Um, you know, my dad was definitely ahead of his time on a lot of things. And, um, so yeah, I just, he, he said, I'd, I'd like you to ride a bike. What do you think about that? And really, I was all about the end game of getting that pair of skis. So he could <laughs> asked me anything and I would have said yes. So like through that 13 year old brain of mine, I was like, wait a second, I get a pair of skis and a bike out of this deal. Hell yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so that that was kind of how it got started. Um, you know, of course, I rode dirt bikes with my buddies doing jumps and oh, stuff yeah. like that. But, you know. You know, that was pretty mellow. And then we always did things on the weekends together as a family. You know, we'd go hiking, we'd go rafting. And then my dad started, you know, wanting to get more physically active. So we would go on family bike tours and that I did not like because, (laughs) you know, getting up, you know, going, hanging out with your buddies on a Friday night, then having to get up super early Saturday morning you know, go and meet at some like city market parking lot and meet these old people and bring out bikes and spend the weekend (laughs) riding with your mom, your dad, your sister, and these people that you didn't really know didn't really, um, it it was not what I wanted to do on the weekend. I wanted to hang out with my buddies. So, you know, that was, you know, that was kind of in the back of my mind was, well, if I do these bike tours, at least I'll have a new bike to do it. And yeah, that was, that was it. That was the start. That was how I got my, my first race bike. Uh, My dad knew uh, I was a very active 13 year old boy. And um, he knew that I liked competition. He knew that I liked um, nice new things. So (laughs) he bought me a top of the line Trek 660 with full campy grupo and even sew up wheels. And he bought the same exact bike. So we had kind of like you know, matching bicycles. And all the people that he talked to, you know, up in Aspen said, don't buy him that fancy of a bike. He needs to get a paper route. He needs to earn it. He really <laughs> needs to, to want it. And my dad said right away, like, no, I know my son, like, he's not going to ride around on his mom's 10 old 10 speed very much longer. And I'd like to do these things with him. So yeah, he bought me the bike and then, um, mentioned, Hey, would, do you want to do some races? And of course, you know, the same thing. It was like, do you want me to say yes? And will that get me out of talking to you right now and out with my buddies any faster? (laughs) You know, it's just funny how, you know, you think, you think of those conversations that you have with your parents. Um, so yeah, we signed up for some races and that was the Red Zinger mini classic in 1985. Um, pretty exciting, time to, to get into biking because Alexi Graywall had just won the Olympic road race yeah. in LA. Connie Carpenter Finney had just won, uh, well, she was Connie Carpenter back then, I think, yeah. won the, the women's race in LA. So, it, and she was from Boulder. Alexi was 35 miles up the road, you know, in between Glenwood Springs and Aspen. It was just an exciting, exciting time.
2: Absolutely. No, and it, it, it's so funny. Your your story, I kind of came into the sport the same way, but my dad looked at me one day and he said, you pick the two most expensive sports in the world. You got to pick one of them now because skiing, you know, skis, tickets, trips to the mountains and all that kind of stuff. It was just that. And then I, I go, oh, I want to do this other sport, bike racing, which is also extremely expensive. He just looked at me and went, dude, you, you got to pick one of these two. I'm impressed that your dad was like, yeah, we're doing them all. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, he was super supportive. He and my mom did 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 so much for me. And, you know, um, my dad would, once I did started racing, my dad um, quit his job. Um, I think he was kind of over, you know, being a UPS delivery man and yeah. kind of wanted to get in more physically fit. Um, so he actually bought a, a tiny motor home and would take take me to the races in that. So, <laughs> he'd pick me up from school on Friday after school. We'd drive over to Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs, you know, wherever it was. And, um, you know, this was before GPS and all that stuff it, you know, you'd get the map out and say, <laughs> okay, this is, this is where the race is going to start. So we would park in the parking lot and then in the morning, you know, we'd wake up and the race, you know, they'd be putting up the barriers to start finish line, you know, people would be coming in and yeah, there I had, you know, a bed, yeah. you know that would make me breakfast we had a toilet you know like you know it was it was a nice little um uh advantage i guess yeah um and and as as far as i can remember i remember um jonathan vauder's when we were super young and you know my dad loved jonathan and um he'd always knock on the door and i'd be like Dad, if that's Jonathan, don't let him in here. He's like, no, no, you know, because Jonathan was so damn skinny at that time that my dad, as soon as he saw him, he was just like, hey, Jonathan, come in here, let me make you some breakfast. And you know, Jonathan would come in, and next thing I know, I'm like, wait a second, this guy, I'm racing against this guy in in a couple hours. Like, let him, you know, get dressed in his own car and pee behind the bushes or something like that. Don't help him, yeah. (laughs) You know, don't help him. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, I had, I had great support, great family support and, you know, growing up in Colorado in that magic era, yeah. you know, between 1984 and, you know, 1992, um, I had everything. Um, yeah. you know, the course classic came right through our, uh, hometown, you know, on the way from grand junction toward the moon stage up to the Aspen circuit race, the Olympic training center was less than three hours away down in Colorado spring. Cycling was massive. Um, and I was just very, very blessed to grow up at that time and, and have that support, not only for my family, but the community, uh, my teachers at school, because obviously once I started racing, I started missing a lot of school. Yeah. Um, my friends, it was, it was, you know, it was destiny for me, which when you look at it, American football is my favorite sport. Like I lived for the Denver Broncos, I, li- I love watching, but I've never played one single organized down of football. <laughs> um, my favorite sport growing up was baseball, like the typical American sports. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, I'm attracted to these more European based sports, yeah. you know, playing tennis and, and skiing and, and biking. Um, you know, it was, it was just my destiny to do something a little bit different than what my other buddies in, in Colorado were doing. Yeah, it was was there?
2: When did cycling become something that you were actually at the point where you're going? Okay, I've been competing at this level. I, there's obviously been a lot of people who were influential and, and helped you get to the point where you got. But when was the point where you all thought, okay, I've got what it takes. I can I can go to the highest level of the sport.
1: Uh, someone asked me that question just the other day um, on an at an event that we did and that's really hard to answer because I think, you know, cycling is such a up and down sport. Yeah. You know, one, one race you're on the, you're you're on the top of the podium, the next race you're in the broom wagon. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I, I grew up in a period where, you know, there was a lot of good guys and, you know, George Hinkathy, Jonas Carney. um, And then all of a sudden I win the national championships. I think I'm like, you know, king of the roost. And then this, this triathlete named Lance Armstrong comes into the mix (laughs) and basically shows us who's boss right away when we were 17 years old. And, um, I remember they, you know, I was the big shot, you know, had one toilet B2B I was, you know, reigning national champion, I believe. And, you know, he came in and right away, of course they paired me with him in a two up team time trial um, <laughs> down in Colorado Springs yeah. and at the wow. Olympic training center. And um, let me just tell you, 17 years old, when we got finished with that 10 minute uh, two man team time trial, I said to myself, man, if there are more guys like this in the world, I have no chance of being right. at the top level. Like I'd never seen anyone that strong. No, none of us had. And so it was, You know, there was never a time because, you know, cyclists are, you know, very driven, but at the same time, very critical um, of of their own performance. So I think it was, it was just taking, putting one step in front of the other. And obviously some things fell my way. I definitely had my ups and downs, but, you know, there was always that drive. You know, obviously I had that physiological talent to do endurance sport, Um, but there was never a time where I said, okay, I'm definitely going to be a European pro. Really?
0: Um,
1: I, I thought I had a chance, but you know, you're just putting that one step one foot in front of the other at that time and, and hope things work out. Um, but yeah, when I was able to sign with, uh, Motorola in 1995, um, you know, I was had a minimal contract. I, you know, I think, back then there wasn't a such thing as minimum salary, but I mean, made, you know, next to nothing. And then you're, then you're in there with the big boys and there you're like, you know, am I going to make it? I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm good enough. You know, all those questions come in, but you know, you just take it one step at a time. Um, But there was never a time that I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be a European pro. I said, okay, I'm, good at what I do at the level that I'm doing against competition that I'm doing it against. But at the same time, I never really took that for granted. I never really did it. I dreamed about it. Of yeah. course I yeah. had, you know, Davis Finney, um, Greg Lamond, um, <laughs> all sorts of people up on my walls, but it just seemed like that was like a dream. It, yeah. it didn't seem like a, a reality, but, you know, luckily I did, grew up grow up in a very unique period of cycling in america where there was a lot of support um it was exciting there was a lot of buzz around it um and then growing up in colorado obviously made things a lot easier yeah um you know not everybody Around the country in the different states, had that same sort of thing basically right in their backyard, like I did. Yeah.
2: Well, I, in fact, and not to make this about me, but this is how I associate with things. I was right ahead of you at the Olympic Training Center. I was with Clark Sheehan and and George's brother Rich, and I were roommates and stuff like that. And I remember that was years here. And I remember when you guys started coming in, and I was, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, who are these punks, kind of a thing like that. And I am so glad I left because you guys were a whole nother level of speed. And things like that. But I remember watching you in the Tour de Pont in 91. You finished fifth there, if I'm not mistaken. And um, what, for that, you know, coming from having, as you say, the posters on the wall and things like that, was that an event that kind of struck you as an eye-opener? You know, here you are, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but racing against the guys you might have on your walls. And what was that to be competing with them at that level? Or were you ready for that by that time?
1: Um, well, I had actually done the Tour de Trump in 1990 where oh, I got yeah, to yeah. race against, you know, some of those guys as well. But like doing in 1991, um, Laurent Fignol, uh, maybe that was 92, but, you know, racing against those guys. Yeah. I remember Sean Kelly was like on the bus um, when we got picked up from the airport. And, you know, like it's Sean Kelly, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and it's not like. I knew the whole history of the sport, but like I, you know, one of the first races that I watched was Perry, Perry in yeah. like 1984, or 1985. And he and Greg were like battling it out. And, you know, then you hear all these stories about him being such a hard man. And I remember we were in the bus and I'm just sitting there like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and somebody said, um, Hey, do, do, do you guys want, um, like sandwiches, because we brought sandwiches or bottle of water, you know, stuff like that. And, um, I remember him looking at the person that offered that stuff to him and he said, no train, no eat. And I just looked over at him like, Oh my gosh, like this guy is so regimented and so serious. Like, (laughs) because he just flew here and didn't train, he's not going to eat. And I was like, yeah give me that damn sandwich i was like 18 <laughs> 19 years old <laughs> you know like i need to eat something to <laughs> keep up with these guys but no that was that was um that was a beautiful event um obviously we had gone over to europe as a national team lance had won the uh settimana bergamasca uh we, we you know we we did quite well over there and you know, I, I didn't, I, I dropped out of that race because we had this crazy cold day and I think like three quarters of the Peloton dropped out. Um, but so when we came back, it was like, you know, Hey, I, at least I'm in this race, you know, Eric Broykink, um, Adelaide Kvals-Vald, you know, all these big guys, the Coors Light guy, Alexi Graywall, who was like my hero, like he was on Coors Light. Davis yeah. Finney was, you know, one of my heroes because I went to his first ever Connie Carpenter Davis Finney training camp and I'm racing <laughs> against these guys. Yeah. And 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 I, I did quite well. And just just the other day, um somebody had sent me this video. Uh one of the riders from uh Esco Citadel sent me this video that he found on Facebook somewhere, and it was an interview of me before the final time trial of that ninety one uh Tour de Pont. Okay. And When I watched it, I was like, you little cocky SOB. Because the question was, hey, Bobby, how do you feel? And I said, I feel great. I'm ready to roll. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. Like, you know, I should have been peeing in my pants at that time. But, you know, when you get that deep into a stage race and, you know, that last stage is, is a time trial. And that's like was my forte. Yeah. It was just interesting seeing how confident I was, um, at 19 years old going into that. Um, so yeah, it it was, it was such a beautiful, it it is such a beautiful sport. And, you know, I took so much, like, like I said, it wasn't, you know, that, you know, interesting or took it that serious because it was just like, Hey, this is just another day tomorrow. I got to do the same thing. Yeah. But being out of the sport now for ten years, um, being on in the coaching business and seeing these kids come up um, and and feel that same emotion that or hopefully felt feel that same emotion that I felt, that my gosh, they're excited to be here. They're yeah. they're nervous to be here. They're you know they they need to stay calm. All these things like things that I was telling myself back then. It's, it's it, it is a beautiful sport, and you'll never forget those times where you know you 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 yeah. overperformed you know or, or exceeded your expectations which is what I did that year. Yeah.
2: I just can't I, I've never been able to understand that concept of going from the these are my idols to I'm racing with my idols to I I feel confident enough to attack the guys who I thought were my idols. It's just that that growth period is something that I've never experienced and I've always just wondered what that process is like and how it feels to be able to go okay now they're you know, they're my equals. It's just an—it's an interesting fascination for those of us on the outside of the fence.
1: You know, to be honest, though, it—it it was just nervous young energy. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't that thought process of this, that, of, of the other thing. It was like I'm a ba- bike racer. These guys put their cycling shorts one leg at a time yeah. uh, on one leg at a time, like I do. But like, yeah you know, when, when it did stick or when you did perform, it was like, wow, you know, this, this is really exciting. And then, you know, in my mind, I was always like, oh, but you know, these guys may not be taking this race as seriously as we did as a national team, you know, cause obviously, you know, these guys are going on to the tour de France, you know, maybe this is just training, you know, these are all the things that go through your mind to kind of say, <laughs> you know, you're not that good, you know? <laughs> you're not that good. So keep working. Yeah.
2: So, so kind of moving on through your career, um, rode with, um, Spago, Chevy, Chevrolet, LA Sheriff, um, and into Motorola. And then after, after the years where Motorola kind of closed their doors there, it seemed like you never looked back in terms of riding for an American team. Was that intentional or did things just kind of work out that way in terms of your path? Uh,
1: It it totally just worked out that way. Um, you know, obviously, um, Chevrolet L.A. Sheriffs was an amazing team. Um, I went from, you know, being on teams with guys that were my age to all of a sudden being on a team with guys that were 27, 32, even 34, which, you know, like when you're 20, 21, that sounds old. Now I'm just like, wow, that that's really super young. Why did I think like that? But instead of talking about, you know, the latest music or the clothes or girls you know all these guys were married and you know we were talking about washing machines refrigerators <laughs> lawnmowers diaper genies things like this and and those guys you know thomas craven jim copeland yeah. malcolm elliott steve Haig, jamie polinetti uh jeff pierce these these guys man it was exactly what i needed at that time because it was time to grow up you know like yes you know, we, we had a lot of support. I think I was, you know, yes, a, a cocky little, little jerk. Um, <laughs> but but when, I, um, when I went to that team, I remember like the first training camp. Thomas Craven is still a very close friend of mine. He lives here in Greenville as well. And Jim Copeland, who were like the two kind of big bosses of the team, they pulled me aside and they said, we heard you're an asshole.
2: Oh, my God. Prove us
1: wrong. and i was like okay uh i i will and so so that to me was like one of those teams that was so special um you know going into motorola um i really didn't want to go to motorola but thomas craven pulled me aside one day and he said um so what are you doing next year and i said hey what are you talking about we I'm, i'm gonna ride with you guys we're gonna win all these races in america he goes, if, I, if you're on this team next year, I'm going to kick you off your bike. Wow. And I said, what? He goes, you need to go to Europe. You're, you're wasting your time here. You need to get to Europe. You need to experience Europe. And I really, as soon as I walked out of that conversation with him, I started thinking about it. And then not much later, I got a call from Jim Ackowitz and um, wound up signing a one-year deal with, with Motorola. So, you know, that obviously was an, a very American team. Uh, I lived in Como, Italy with, with Frankie Andreu, Kevin Livingston, George Hincapie, uh, Lance. You know, we lived together in a little apartment. Lance also lived there, and we had some staff that lived there. Um, but, yeah, when that team folded and, you know, it was kind of like, well, what do we do now? You know, we luckily, I had performed well at the Tour of uh, Spain that year, and I got a call from, uh, from Lance, actually, who had already signed on that uh, team. And he played me a um, uh, a message on a um, telephone answering machine, which okay. you know half of the listeners don't even know what that is, and my <laughs> kids don't know what that is. Um, and it was uh, the manager of the team, Alan Bondu, and he said, "Yes, hey Lance, you know we'd like to get into contact with Bobby Jewett to see if he wants to ride for the team next year." And then Lance just pushed stop and said, "So, dude, do you want to come with us?" Wow. And it was like. Oh my God, absolutely. Like how much fun is that going to be? And then, yeah. Um, you know, a few weeks later, you know, we got the call from Jim Okowitz informing us that that Lance had had cancer. Yeah. So, um, I never wound up racing with Lance at, at Cofidis, but I was there for with two years with Kevin Livingston and, a, and one year with, with Frank Andreu. Um, and then going to those, you know, staying on the French team, Cofidis for three years, and then going to another French team, Credit Agricole, and yeah. then going to a German team, Telecom, and then ending my career at, at CSC. It, it it wasn't on purpose, but um, the only real team to go back to with and be more of that American influence was was Lance's team, um, and I, I remember sitting across from those guys when they you know, we're winning all those tours and they'd be cracking up laughing and having fun. And we're over there, you know, just staring at our bowl of soup and overcooked pasta saying to myself, like, man, I, I, I wish I had somebody to talk to in my own native language. I wish I could, um, you know, hang out and, you know, watch MTV and, 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 and relax. But it was, it was, it was just a different path that, I didn't mean to take, but it just was the way that things unfolded. And, you know, looking back at it, um, I I don't think I would have changed much of that because it gave me, um, you know, quite an experience. You know, I, I moved over to France, you know, bought a house in in Nice and was committed to to staying over there and, you know, stayed over there for, you know, had that house over there for, for 17 years. My daughters were, educated were raised and educated over there for, for the most part up until, you know, two and a half years ago when we moved back here to Greenville. So it it gave us that experience. But, you know, there were some times where you just wish you could hang out with, you know, speak your native tongue yeah. and, and just really have fun. And that's what I think really changed when I went to CSC was all of a sudden, like I go there um, again had no results for four or five years um, was definitely thinking, uh, you know, my career is over. And then Bjarne Reese threw me um, uh, a very small contract. It was actually the same exact amount that I signed for as a Neopro with, with Jim Okowitz was $25,000. And um, you know, four years prior five years prior, I was third in the Tour de France and all of a sudden now I, I don't have a contract jesus and i wound up uh signing the contract and going to the training camp and my wife is like listen this is not gonna work for us financially like this won't even pay our taxes and i said but i'm not done yet yeah uh i'm maybe being kind of you know forced out of the sport but i feel that i'm not done yet and i'm just gonna go and and feel it out and if it's if it's you know miserable then, you know, I'll rip up that contract and, you know, find something else to do. But when I went to that first training camp and one of the first things that he said was, you know, we're going to speak English at this, at this team. This is the English speaking team. Yeah. And Yen Voigt was there and, um, gosh, at the beginning, there weren't that many, um, guys, but everybody spoke English. And then, of course, the next year, then all of a sudden we had, you know, Fabian Contralera yeah. and Stuart O'Grady, the, the Schleck brothers, um, Christian Vanneveld, David Sabrisky. It, it became very, very comfortable. And that's what really helped me through those last few years of my career and almost that like that rebirth in 2004 through 2006, where yeah. it was like, man, like, I'm happy again. And that's one thing that I speak to a lot of young riders about. And I'm like, you know, you can sign a contract, you know, for any team and get paid any certain amount of money. But this sport is not a glory sport. You know, you, you're, you're on the, you're working hard and suffering a lot. And that makes it so much easier when you're working hard and suffering with, with your friends. And we had a very wow, yeah. special thing there. And yeah, we we won a lot of races and we did some amazing things. We accomplished some amazing things. And for me, it was just being happy again and not, not having that, that language barrier and that, that cultural barrier. I mean, we, we laughed so hard, but then we'd get up in the morning and, and just crush it in training and crush it in the races. And it just, it was entertaining. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, at some of the memorabilia that I kept from those years, holy cow, what a team we had. What a team. <laughs>
2: so, and, and I don't mean to backtrack a little bit, but I can't let 98 go by without talking about that. And to be able to, that, that, that tour, and actually that year as a whole were pretty spectacular. Um, what was that, the experience, like and and the feeling of finish finishing on the podium, something still very rare at the time for a U.S. rider to pull something like that off. Was it something you always felt capable of accomplishment, or was it a surprise, or what was going on in your head at that time?
1: Um, no, it was definitely a surprise. But remember, the '98 tour had a lot of asterisks around it. You know, we had met many, many, many of the the top. Overall GC contenders actually drop out of the race, yeah, you know, but, or protest the race. But so, Marco Marco you know, Pantani it,
2: it, was still there for crying out loud. So this isn't something that like we can just say you know we can walk, brush it under the under the rug because you you still had you uh, you were still competing a race with Marco Pantani and and uh, Jan Ulrich was there and all that kind of stuff. So th- those guys aren't you know just <laughs> throwaway riders, right?
1: Yeah, they're not pack fill. Um, but let's just say that you know I. I honestly, you know, to this day, know that if, if Richard Varenk, um, Laurent Galabert, um to just name a few that I can remember, um, if they didn't stop the race, who knows? Things would have maybe been different. I, I mean, I was riding well, obviously, but at the same time, it, it was a blur. Um,
0: really?
1: Because the first thing, you know, when I got fourth in the prologue, all I wanted to do was touch that yellow jersey and I was, gosh, two weeks in second place and never got to, you know, touch touch the yellow that year. Um, and it was obviously filled with a lot of drama, um, a lot of protest. Oh, yeah. And to me, um, there, there weren't that many memories there because at the time I didn't speak very good French. And I did have an American teammate with me, uh, Kevin Livingston. And when we got in the hotel, we would turn on MTV, and we'd sit there and maybe, you know, play around with the internet, which was like, you know, slow as yeah. anything back then. <laughs> um, hardly any web pages, you know, it was just something to do. But we'd sit there and watch TV, and we'd go to bed at 10, 1030. We'd wake up in the morning and be like, ready to race. But, you know, we were unaware of all the drama that was going on outside, because when you'd go down to the breakfast table, you know, all your teammates would hey did you hear what happened or did you hear this and they had you know bloodshot eyes like they had been up till two in the morning oh, wow. and it, it it was it was such a crazy race that um and it was you know once it was over it was like on to the next one there wasn't any like really you know victory parade or like you know it was like boom the next day it felt like okay what have you done for me today so really? it, it was not as, um, I mean, yes, those pictures of being on the podium, having my parents there, having my my girlfriend, who's now my wife, there, you know, that was phenomenal. Being in that photo on the on the Champs-Élysées was amazing. But man, it was over so fast and forgotten so fast. Like, honestly, that next day, two days later, you're doing these criteriums and then you're doing, you know, uh, San Sebastian and, and Grand Prix Zurich. And then it's just like, you know, people forgot about it, um, myself included. It was like, okay, on to the next thing. But um, that was, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time. Um, I wouldn't say I had you know that many like amazing memories from it because it was a, a challenging, drama filled tour with a bunch of asterisks around it. But um, you know, it, it it was neat living through, but you know, when you try to repeat that the next year, and you fail miserably, and then the next year, the same thing. And for four or five years, you know, you're just suffering. um, You know, you almost forget that, that 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 happened. Um, I remember Oakley, actually, in my office right now, I've got this beautiful photo that Oakley did for me um, after that, to kind of, you know, end of the year kind of congratulations thing. And when I look at it, it's like, I'm looking at somebody totally, it's like, I'm looking at another rider, Really? you know, it's like, Oh wow, gosh, I was that skinny. And I looked that good (laughs) on the bike and, you know, totally different from, you know, 47 year old Bobby Julik. But, um, (laughs) yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a period that, um, was over before you knew it. And then, you know, you strove to get back there and, and I never did. And, um, you know, that was also, you know, that's also part of the sport.
2: Was there ever that, that any pressure that you felt of, you know, here we are in the States, and I, I can only imagine if there was that, the, quote, next American hope, unquote. Did you ever feel any of that, or was it, was you just like, I'm just racing my bike. I've, I've got to do what I can do day by day.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: interviewed a lot. Um, oh, yeah. But Lance, you know, later in that year, Lance got fourth in the tour, uh, in the Vuelta, fourth in the Worlds, And then, you know, he was back in full force. And it was like, okay, the king is back. Like, it wasn't like I felt all the pressure because I'm like, you know, I I'd met him when I was 17 years old yeah. and knew that he was the strongest SOB on the planet or found out that, you know, throughout my career. So I didn't really feel like it. But being on a French team um, and trying to repeat that, that, um, that, that result without having, you know, the support and that American um, mentality of lighter wheels, uh, wind tunnel testing, nutrition, all this stuff. um, I felt like a little bit like, okay, I'm going to try my best here, but man, I, I, I just don't know. You know, I was, Sourcing, you know, faster wheels and faster bikes and having them painted up and, you know, um, you know, doing all this stuff that normally an agent would do nowadays because, you know, the riders are so well supported. Um, But, yeah, it was it was, you know, to do it once is one thing to repeat it is another. And that's why I have so much respect for these guys that can win multiple grand tours year after year, because, you know, the pressure's on. And second place is is not good enough. You know, if you won the year before, you should win the next year. And wow. you know that was one of the things that I took out of the Tour de France this year was you know Chris Frome, who had won four Tours um, getting third. Anyone else in the peloton would have signed on the dotted line for that third place. Yeah. But um, you know, I'm sure it was difficult for him. But I, I thought he I thought he dealt with that situation so, so well. Um, it wasn't like, Oh, my teammate flicked me and this or that, the other thing, but he, he really, you know, said, okay, I got beat by two other better guys. Um, but I know that that must've been a hard pill to swallow because, you know, I never was at that level or winning a grand tour like that. But, um, it's, it's brutal how, those goals get so narrow once you do win one of those grand tours. Yeah. And it was something that I just couldn't, you know, deal with or, or replicate.
2: Wow. It, as somebody who's been in that organization and, you know, and for me watching the, you know, the, as you mentioned with Chris and with Garrett Thomas winning the tour this year, did you, did that seem like a planned move, especially in terms of sending Chris to the Giro? Um, and just in case Chris wasn't able to race, we've got, waiting in the wings and he's going to be ready to rock.
1: Well, you have to remember that Chris had, you know, some, you know, some things hanging over his his head from, you know, so I think definitely, I mean, you know, Sky is a very smart organization and, you know, you know, Chris was allowed to do the Giro, won the Giro with this amazing attack on stage 19. Um, But yeah, I think they hedged their bets a little bit for sure. I think anyone would have at that time because you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket and then find out a week before the tour yeah. that, that you're not allowed to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they, they definitely hedged their bets there. And, you know, G has been around for a long time. I mean, one of the best guys in the Peloton, one of my favorite riders of all time, because he's, he's just a hard man. Yeah. Um, but in grand tours in the past or many races, there was always that crash. There was always that, you know, one bad crash that kind of took him out of contention. Yeah. And this year it was a picture perfect tour. He was never under pressure. He was never split off the back. Um, And maybe it was because he didn't have to have all the pressure because Chris was, um, you know, taking half of that or most of that. And that, that pressure, when you're in the yellow Jersey that you that you don't have to deal with, I'm sure was a big factor. Um, And yeah, he, everything went his way. He rode amazingly. He was perfectly prepared. You know, the team had, you know, plan a plan B, probably all the way to plan Z uh, to deal with stuff. And, you know, this is, this is chess, not checkers, you know, and, and they played it perfectly. And, um, you know, him winning the tour de France, of course, you know, Chris is one of my favorite guys. Um, and G is, but you, you gotta just pat, uh, G on the back and say, wow, well done, sir. Well done.
2: Yeah. And it's going to make for some interesting drama in terms of that, that organization when we approach this next season.
1: I can imagine, I can imagine, but you know what, if there's one team that can deal with that, um, two individuals that can deal with that, um, it's them. So it's going to be super entertaining, uh, but they'll have a plan and they'll, you know, get behind whatever plan it is, and you know I'm sure be be quite successful again.
2: So tell me about your pathway into coaching—from going um, on the bike to behind the wheel and and doing these types of things. Was that just a logical path for you to follow, or was it something that kind of oh okay I'll try this? Or w- were you coaching yourself kind of a thing along the way up until you got to that that point?
1: Um, no, I was I definitely started very early using a power meter and being interested in training techniques. And I had some great coaches. Uh, My dad, number one, um, you know, Chris Carmichael, Max Testa, Bjarne Reese, you know, all these guys really, you know, put that structure into uh, who I became not only as a rider, but then afterwards, but that, that, that um, turning point from, you know, being a biker to moving into another space was was quite um, particular in my case, because, you know, I, sh- I really, sh- you know, thinking of retiring in 2007, and then Fabian and Frank and Andy and Jens and Stuart, you know, the whole crew that we had at CSC was like, do one more year, let's do the Tour de France together, it'll be, you know, it'll be fantastic. So I I actually signed on for 2008, and I knew in February of 2008, in the Tour of California, we were doing this crazy stage that the year before, I think we finished in four and a half hours, it was a stage from San Jose to San Luis Obispo, like right down to PCH, like beautiful, gorgeous, sunshine, (laughs) tailwind, like it was beautiful this year. it was cold, rainy headwind. <laughs> I think it took us nine hours to do oh the God stage. oh God. And I think I went back the second time to change my gloves or because I was just freezing, and I went back to to Bjarne, who was in the passenger seat of the car, and I just looked at him and just very candidly, without even thinking about it, and I you know, gosh, probably should't have said this to my boss, I said. Bionna, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) You know, and right then and there, I'm just like, man, I should have retired. I should have retired. But then, of course, you get going and then it's like, wow, what a big decision to switch to retire. Like, you know, you're not a professional bike racer anymore. Are you comfortable with that? Um, I didn't do the Tour de France that year. I went to a training camp up in Luxembourg. I started to kind of get into it again. Like, you know, yeah, man, you know, being around the boys. And I called up Bjarne and I said, hey, um, I think I want to do one more year. And he said to me something that I'll never forget. He said, Bobby, no.
0: Wow.
1: And I was like, what? He goes, I need you more off the bike than on the bike. Really? And I said, I said but Bjarne, wh- what does that mean? You know, wh- what will I do? He goes, think about it, come back to me, and then, you know, we'll talk. And I'm like, what do I do? You know, like, what do I do? And for for years, the younger writers on the team had told me, like, man, you you, you always look after us and, you know, you explain things. And some of my friends were like, you would be a good coach someday. Wow. Um, and I never, you know, I said, wait a second. I don't, you know, I, I never went to school. Um, you know, everything I learned was like in trial and error, like, you know, this is science. But I was one of those guys that would definitely dig into my SRM files every single day. And this was before training peaks where you have all this analytical software. It was looking at each file as an individual, not the overall, you know, performance management chart and, you know, you know, best metrics and everything that everyone has at their fingertips. Now there was very little data or analytical engines that could, you know, help you understand what you were doing. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd break it up and say, oh, man, you know, my cadence was a little low here. and There's that, the other thing. Um, and then I said, OK, Bjana, like. I want to do this, you know, we agreed to terms, but I said, Bjana, what's my job title? What, what, what do you want me to do? He goes, don't worry, we'll figure it out. Wow. And I was like, OK. And I went in there and like, remember, this was these were my buddies. These, this was the team that I helped lead for the four years, five years prior. So all I said was one thing that I, I said to myself when I was racing is I I said, I wish – I said, I want to be that guy that I wish I had in my corner when I was racing. Wow. That's all I want to do, all I want to be for, for these guys. And, yeah, it was a very slow process, you know, and then I got um, – I, I ran into – Dirk Friel, who he and his father and a few other guys started Training Peaks. I ran into him at the Las Vegas Bike Show when I retired and you know went there to do my last little signing of poster thing. He was sitting on the ground eating a sandwich, and I was like, Dirk, how are you? I've known him since I was 14 years old. You know, we grew up racing together in Colorado, and he goes, Hey man, you know, you know, me and my dad we started this thing called Training Peaks, and I'm like, Well, what's that? And I said, you know, just give me a card. And, you know, when you walk through the Las Vegas bike show back in the day, everyone's handing you uh, (laughs) a card. And I got back and I have a stack, like, you know, two inches thick of these cards. And I'm going through each one and I see the one from Dirk. And I call him up and, you know, he introduced me to Training Peaks and WKO3 at the time. And I said, wait a second, this is exactly what I wish I had. And yeah. this is what I want to provide in a support way to my my buddies, you know, my, my teammates from last year. And yeah, that kind of just started like, okay, you'll take care of the young guys and then, you know, help us do some DSing stuff and then some logistical stuff. And, you know, slowly but surely I just found that that was the thing that I really like to do, which is coaching and coaching, you know, nowadays, you know, it can be a little bit overwhelming with all the data that we have and all the science back behind it. But I've always had this very strong belief that as a coach, you just wanna make somebody better. You know, some guys love the numbers, some guys don't, but like all you want to do is be there. And if you can, you know, drip feed them a little bit of science and a little bit of knowledge, experience, that's a bonus, but really you're just going to help them not make the same mistakes or do the things that you did wrong. Right. And yeah, it just kind of took off from there and really enjoyed it. Um, kind of came to a, a point where it was like, okay, what do I do? And, you know, then it was, you know, on the team sky and then BMC and then, you know, um, Tinkoff. And now I'm back here. I worked with uh, George and Kathy team, Holoweska Citadel last year, but obviously, once, once you move out of Europe, it's very hard to have that face time with the guys. Like when I lived in Nice, you know, Chris Frome, Richie Port, these guys lived down in Monaco. So it was so easy to, to see them. When I was at BMC, Philippe Gilbert and Taylor Finney were, and 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 Juan Ar were like right there. So you're having coffee with these guys. Yeah. You're going out on the motorcycle with these guys. But when we made our decision to, you know, give our – two girls, the American high school experience, it, it, it's, yeah, it's a little bit difficult to, you know, um, stay so connected with those guys because, you know, they're obviously at the highest level. And, you know, I've always had my, my coaching and consulting business that I've fallen back on that I love to do. I am coaching riders from all ages now and all uh, categories and, and really enjoy it. and, you know, back in the day, when you were employed by a team, you had eight riders to take care of, um, and you were, you know, paid by the the team. Yeah. Now, you know, you're you're working, and you have, you know, a few more riders. I don't like to have that many, um, but then these these are people that, you know, maybe in the World Tour, maybe in Pro Continental status, maybe in Continental status, maybe, you know, a 55 year old guy that works in in New York City or, you know, a, a, you know somebody that works in Luxembourg that, that just wants to get a little bit more fit. And it, it, it really has opened up the world because, you know, when you're dealing with guys that have, you know, that FTP threshold, whatever you want to call it nowadays, yeah. um, that's in the 400s. Oh, God. And then you start working with guys that have that, you know, metric, in, you know, mid 200s, yeah. you know, maybe low 300s, it's a totally different ball game. But again, it goes back to, you know, that coach-rider relationship, what you're trying to do, regardless of who they are, how old they are, what their ability level is, um, you're just trying to make them better. And that's, wow. that's what I love about it. Um, you know, before it was a little bit, you know, uh, more structured because, you know, professional riders don't, you know, that's their job. Right, that's the only thing they have to do. So you could do, you know, three three to seven hour training. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But with with a guy with a guy that, you know, has a full time job, you can't really, you know, there's no way they could do that sort of stuff. So oh. it's, it's forced me to really understand the the normal person rather than that elite professional athlete. And um, you know, I've gone through it as oh, you know, I was you know, an elite professional athlete. And then I got into coaching and, you know, we didn't ride so much and you we gain weight and you we lose fitness. And then, you know, you kind of have to go back and start at square one and start doing some of the things that, you know, that I suggest guys do. Yeah. And it's, it's been a, it's been a fun experience. And the way the sport has changed the technology involved, um, the, the, the intelligence level of the riders themselves has gone up. So, yeah, you, you, you have to know what you're talking about and, and really, you know, simplify it and make it easy for these guys to understand. But, you know, we didn't have power meters and training peaks and analytical software and, you know, aerodynamic wind tunnels and all that stuff basically, you know, at our beck and call. These guys, these guys do, you know, the clothing has gotten faster, more aerodynamic, lighter, more breathable. The, the bikes, the wheels, I mean, it's just unbelievable you know, the amount of data and science that goes into the sport. But the bottom line is you need to enjoy riding your bike. You need to enjoy the process of working hard, you know, the ups, the downs. It's it's not just press a button and then five minutes later out the other end of this conveyor belt comes this beautiful finished product. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work. And um, I love that process. I love that challenge. I love trying to give some of my expertise, um, you know, to these, to these athletes, to these, to these people more than anything to, to hopefully make them just a little bit better.
2: Are the people you're working with currently, are, do you have it all across the athletic spectrum? Are you dealing with kind of even everything from, you know, juniors and weekend warriors up to these, you know, this, the standard of uh, professionals around the area? What, what, what kind of range are you currently working with
1: yeah it's the full spectrum um i tend not to um coach juniors um, because i do feel being a junior myself that like you do need to you know you're 16 17 years old you know be 16 or 17 years old learn some things through trial and error um you know even in you know 18 19 20 like it can't be as structured because I don't think that you need to be living like a pro when you're 16 or 17 years old, because then that burnout factor is so high. Yeah. But yeah, all the the entire spectrum is, is my current um, roster right now. So it's it's quite, quite fun.
2: Do you stick regionally just kind of people you can spend FaceTime with, or is it done uh, through distance?
1: No, I, I, I mean, I, Nowadays, you know, you're all it's it's Europe, it's every part wow. of the U.S. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah, it, it's crazy. But you know, that yeah, that FaceTime, um, I miss, and that's something that that I may look into to changing uh, soon. But you know, technology is such an amazing thing nowadays. You know, I mean, everybody has a Direct Force power meter. Um, you know, you, you have Skype, WhatsApp. Uh, FaceTime, all these ways of communication, which you didn't really have before, um, but yeah, they're spread all over the place, and that's the thing that that's difficult. You actually mentioned this to me, you know, when we were trying to plan this uh, podcast yeah. was different time zones, and you know, files are coming in all day long. Like when you're in Europe and you have European-based guys, you know, from 9 a.m. or from 8 a.m. until two or three that you know, you can do some work, you can, you know, take your kids to school, you can do this, you can do that. Uh, You can go try to ride your bike. Um, But then then the files come in and you have your work to do your your analysis to do. Um, But when you when you have different people all over the world with different time zones, like, it's just a constant flow. So you don't have the you know, you got to work. Uh, in a In a different way than if you did when you know people were following either a set program or in that one kind of european time zone
2: yeah so so let's let's plug what you're doing how do how do people find this if we've got somebody listening right now going man i, I, I count me in how do I get involved
1: yeah like I said I don't like having um too many clients yeah. to be yeah. honest like um i i, I don't feel like I'm a, like a copy and paste coach. So I try to keep my client list quite small. Um, don't really have, uh, you know, any fancy website. I, I do have a landing page where, you know, people can, can contact me. Um, um But yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm still trying to be, yeah. you know, a good father to my girls and a husband. I like riding my bike. Um, so I, I, I like to do a little bit more than just just work all the time, and that's why I kind of keep my my, um, cool. my client list a little bit truncated. yeah.
2: No, that's cool, and that, that like you say, it doesn't turn it into a cookie cutter type of a thing where you're just sending somebody a plan and pretending you actually care on the other end.
1: Yeah, I mean for me, you need that you, you need to become very close. you know I'm not saying that you're going to be best friends. No. but you need to have that open and honest communication going each way. And you, you can send me a file and I can look at that file. But to me, the most important thing that happens is that phone call, that text or that comment in that comment section well, that yeah. makes those, all those fancy graphs and all that data, which is basically just math pop up and become like this 3d, 4d encompassing experience. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that's that's one of the, the things that I, 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 I really preach to the guys that I do work with is, you know, the comments. That's that's what I'm really looking at. Yeah. You know, of course, you can geek out on all this math. And, and that's really what it is. You know, that's not you on that analytical software. That's all the data points that were put in. But like, wait a second, how did you feel during that? You know, what? Is, how did you feel after? Are you, you know, recovered again to do it the, the next day? And if you're not, listen. Just because it's written down on a training program doesn't mean that you have to do it. Yeah. If you don't feel that you're ready to do it. Yeah. And that that's always a uh, a challenge, especially with new clients. Is just because it's written on a training program or on some, you know, Training Peaks or you know some other computer uh, program that. You know, they have to do it. It's like, wait a second, that's our plan. But like you need to listen to your sensations and adjust that plan to get the most out of it. Yeah. And um not to say that, you know, you know, if 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 you're, you know, wanting to achieve an objective and you keep pushing these workouts or shortening these workouts, listen, we we can't really get the same end result if we don't put in the work. But it's it's much more I'd rather have a guy take an extra day off because, you know, a lot of these, these things that we see and, and, you know, data is obviously getting more and more analytical and you can be a little bit more precise with all these wearable things and, you know, HRV and all this other stuff. But like bottom line is a lot of the times you look at these things and it's that stress load that, that you see in, in these analytical software. But what happens if you went out the night before? What happened if your kids were sick? What happened if yeah. you didn't sleep well? You know, those are stress what what happened if you had to stand all day at work, uh, you know, presenting, you know, in front of, you know, your entire company? Yeah. You know, these these are stressors that we don't record all the time. So you gotta kinda take that into account and and listen to your sensations because bottom line, you know, all this technology that we have at our fingertips it's really you know your sensations your instincts um you do know best because it's your body yeah um you know coaches we prescribe athletes they execute and sometimes there's a disconnect there but like you know if if riders understand what they're doing and why they're doing it they'll be a little bit more uh inclined to say coach I need to take another rest day because this, this, and this happened. And I don't feel like I can perform that, 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 that workout. No, exactly. To me, that, that is the music to my ears when I hear that, because I know how much it takes to admit something like that. But like, you know, when you're weak, you should ask for help. And we, especially males, when we're weak, we kind of say, oh, you know, toughen up, yeah. HTFU, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, let, let's make this happen. But you know what, it, when it's you, you need to be honest with yourself. And if you're honest with yourself and your coach, then you can create that plan and adjust that plan to be uh, beneficial. If if you just do what's written down and follow the numbers and uh, yeah, you, you lose those sensations. And once you lose those sensations, it's it's very difficult.
2: Yeah. So before I before I wrap this up, you mentioned you still love to ride your bike, and I love hearing the the what I call the lifelong cyclist still going even after you you might have stopped racing at that highest level. What is what is your cycling life currently like?
1: Well, yeah, moving back here to America, um, you know, my wife was raised down in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Her parents are still there, and we knew that if we moved back to the States, her parents are 99 and 93 years old. Oh
2: my, okay. So
1: we wanted to be close to them um, at this period for obvious reasons. And um, I thought we were gonna move to Charleston. And you know, I love Charleston, Charleston's an amazing city, but we started just kind of like doing these little day trips when we'd go down there to visit. So to, eh, what else is down here in the South? Cause I was raised in Colorado. You know, the South always seemed like another country, yeah. right? Um, and then all of a sudden we're looking around Greenville and George and Rich Hincapie are here who are two of my oldest friends. I met Rich at the Olympic training center in 1986. Yeah. He was, he was the guy that, you know, from New York with all his buddies. Oh, God, and yeah. like, I was, I was this young little 15 year old kid that, you know, was lucky to even be there. I was and, his roo- you know, I
2: was his roommate,
1: man. <laughs> okay so so he kind of took me into his little crew and you know my my family my extended family my parents are both from New York and you know it was just something that you know he didn't have to do at that time yeah you know like I was I was nobody but you know he he took care of me and he you know I got to sit with those guys at the table and ride next to them and hang out with them and you remember those, those oh, dorm yeah. rooms at the Olympic Training Center back then, the barracks. And, uh, yeah, it's cinder
2: block um, hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And, um, you know, it was like, wait a second, up there, you know, let's let's just go check it out. And, you know, we, we wound up moving up here not to hang out with Rich and George and Christian Veneveld, who also lives here. Yeah. Um, but, man, it's been an amazing, uh, I mean, just so great. Because, you know, when you're working hard, and you're following all day in the car and doing the analysis when you get when you finally get that time you don't have time to work out at least i didn't have the energy or the the drive to structure my day to go out for an hour ride or an hour and a half ride in the morning um because back in the day like i wouldn't even put on my cycling kit for less than 2 hour ride yeah so it was always one of those like you know spoke pause, like it just didn't happen. But you know, moving up here and and having Rich and and Christian and George, um you know, blow up my phone right as we move. Hey, let's go for a ride. Wow. I'm like, wait a second, man. I just moved back from Europe. I'm down here in the South. It's really really hot. Like I don't I don't really want. To. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too windy. It's too this. It's too that. But like they kept at it, and like. Um, finally it was just like, okay, you know, let's, you know, I'll, I'll go riding with you guys. And let me tell you, it was, it was terrible because like these guys, even though they retired a few years ago, they've kept up with their fitness. They haven't really lost that, that, that base, that, <laughs> that FRC, that, that power, that strength. Yeah. Uh, but I had, because I really didn't ride that much at all from, uh, 2008 until 2016. And if I did ride, it was a coffee stop ride or it was, you know, two hours along the beach in Nice where you would stop for a a coffee and then maybe for a little kebab and then finally, you know, get back home. So I lost an incredible amount of fitness and then trying to make up for that was difficult. But this group of guys has really helped me. And, you know, this community is amazing. We have a, a lot of amazing friends and, we just, it, riding the bike is, again, part of my structure of the day, um, and that I owe, you know, to to, to Rich and George and Christian and, and our little kind of crew of guys. We, we get together, we have fun, we go for rides, and then, you know, recently, George and I, um, you know, during the bad weather, we get on Swift, and we just kind of like, you yeah. know, just kind of try to drop each other and have fun, and we talk to each other on the phone, so it's, it's kind of like a debrief, like, you know, fun group ride, but I'm in my garage and he's in his, in his workout room up at his house. Yeah. So it, it has become again, like, you know, it's always been there and, but now it's a little bit more exciting. It's a little bit more fun and, it's, you know, getting out there and, you know, just being healthy again. But I think once you're a cyclist, even if you stop, you know, you still think like a cyclist and, you know, it's part of, what we do and who we are. It's like air, Yeah, you know, you, you need it. And, you know, you will go through times where, you know, you won't ride and you'll lose fitness, but you know, there's always, that bike is always hanging up in your garage and you may look at it and walk right by it for weeks, months, years, maybe even a decade, but it's always there. It's always a part of you. And it's always something that gives you that amazing feeling. And just recently, um, a couple of our friends down here, George was one of them and and our buddy con um, they posted on social media that moment when they were teaching their young sons how to ride a bike. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And man, when I saw those videos, I was like, that's it. Like that moment is such an amazing feeling. And to be able to share that with other people and maybe not teaching them how to ride the bike without training wheels for the first time, but maybe teaching them how to descend, how to corner, how to climb, you know, how to recover, you know, how to, you know, activate before the workout to make you feel better from that first pedal stroke. Um, that, that's it. And, you know, it's, it's just an amazing sport. And I hope that, you know, obviously we're going through a little bit of a, you know, a dip, if you will,
2: um,
1: with the overall popularity of cycling in the U S. But uh, I'm I'm convinced that you know we are going to come out of this. Um, you know we are going to have more than just a handful of American riders in the Tour de France, and um, you know you know come out of this in in a great way, and 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 find that that person, those people, that that team, that the entire country can rally behind again. You know, like 7-Eleven, like you know, U.S. Postal, these teams mm-hmm. that were. Iconic at that time, um, you know. We we need to find that. We need to to gel because our 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 talent pool is the biggest in the world, but we're losing all these great kids and all this great talent to these other sports. Yeah. Um, not to say that cycling is suffering, um, but maybe that competitive side, those races that we used to have, you know, a full calendar every weekend. You were doing a different race. Now it's like. You race one weekend, you have to race, race wait three weeks to race another weekend, and then a month to race another weekend. But you know, with the Grand Fondos, with the mixed surface races that we have going on now, um, you know, I I think that's going to be part of that whole, you know, rebirth of, of you know the popularity of cycling over here in the U.S.
2: Bobby, in the last five minutes, you have made this statement that absolutely defines everything <laughs> I believe in the sport, and I have been talking about on this podcast since like 1999, so that was absolutely poetic, man, <laughs> because that's exactly what it is. It's about riding and being competitive and, and, and the bike being a part of your life no matter what. It's about how the sport is growing and where the sport's going and what we need to do and um, and the, and the, just the joy that we found when we were first kids going out in that freedom out and riding around the neighborhood not to be too melodramatic how we almost spend our entire lives trying to get that feeling again and that's what that's what keeps us all going out and riding around with our friends.
1: Yep, yep, it's a fantastic way. It's one of those sports that you can do forever.
2: Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: um I love golf as well, but like, you know, biking is 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 even better.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, First of all, uh, I, I love your perspective, and I love being able to finally get a chance to chat with you and, um, I, and how humble you are about some of the areas of your career that I, I, uh, that just kind of floor me. But um, uh, as somebody who sat here in the States and, and watched what you did and, and that in- incredible time of, of American cycling, thank you for being a part of it, man, and thanks for, thanks for being on the show.
1: Well, like I said, it's been, it's been quite a ride, and, um, you know, let's just hope in a few more years you're, you're interviewing, uh, you know, that next superstar that, that brings all this, uh, this amazing sport back to the, the level that it should be.
2: Amen to that. Thanks, man.
1: Okay, all the best.
2: So there you are. What did I tell you?
1: Nice guy to talk
2: to. And Like I said, after I hit stop on the recorder, this conversation continued on for what felt like at least another 10 to 15 minutes. Just shooting the shit with a really nice guy who you'd want to go for a bike ride with, even though he's achieved such amazing things within the sport and um, I, I, his humility seemed to be intact. Um, he put himself as an asterisk next to that third place podium spot and the Tour de France, I don't place an asterisk next to it. Freaking Marco Pantani was there, you guys. Um, but uh, hearing humility and, and hearing what life after cycling is like is always an interesting transition for these guys. But uh, as you notice throughout the shows and some of the interviews we do, some of them hang up the wheels and never look at the bike again. And, um, and I couldn't imagine that. You know, I, I, guess, I guess I can't put it into place. You know, if, if, if I was an accountant my entire life, I don't think I'd want to do accounting after I retired. But it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes for me to understand something that has been such a part of my life since I was a little kid, riding up and down the alley, first time off the training wheels, that, that freedom, that camaraderie, that, um, you know, that's, I, I guess I could say solitude that I am so appreciative of. I couldn't imagine hanging that up and putting it away. And Bobby didn't seem to do that. He seemed like he had a, had a little transition period, but, but those friends that you make in the sport never go away. And you always have that opportunity to just go out on your bike for a few hours with some, some of your friends. And um, I, I think I've said it before on the show, I'll come home after a four-hour ride and my wife will ask me, what did you guys talk about? And I will honestly not know what to tell her. Because I don't know what we talked about, but I guarantee the only times it stopped were when the pace got too hard that we couldn't talk anymore. Um, And that's what I love about this, and that's what I love about the sport, and that's that's what, what Bobby seems to be going through. So big thanks to him for being a part of the show. And big thanks to you guys for listening through, and thank you guys for your support. Um, thanks for subscribing to the podcast. The numbers are, are continually going up. You can tell when I'm consistent with this show because you guys all start to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, where the hell you been? Uh, you know. So thank you guys for your for your feedback. Keep it coming. You guys can find us, good God, Instagram, Twitter. I wish I didn't have to be on Facebook anymore because Facebook's just people all on their political soapbox But we're still on Facebook, and of course, you can email me directly, patrick at packfiller.com, or go to the website, or any of those types of things, right? There we go. You guys, uh, another episode should be coming up here within the next day or two. I had an opportunity to talk to some more people, and hopefully we'll keep that steady stream flowing, right? That almost sounded like a urinary joke. (laughs) Ha-ha. And that's unfortunately where I'm going to end my show. We'll talk to you guys next time.